You can hear me now? Oh, there, hey, there we go. Perfect. I thought my, my daughter was fiddling with it, so it might have been her. But for those who don't know me, my name is uh, Justin Sitzma. I've been on staff for almost three months, which is kind of crazy to think about. And uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited to be preaching from a fairly difficult passage as I went through it. Um, and I was like all eager. I was like, yeah, Alex, I'm going to take this one. It's going to be great. And then I got into it. I was like, whew. Anyway. Um, I want you to imagine, this is going to just set us up where we're going to go. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that a certain city has just recently become ignited with passion for a particular sport. And just pretend for a moment that that, that, that team uh, just recently won a championship. And over two million people turned up uh, to, to flood the streets. They took off work, took off school, and they celebrated and just wanted to get a glimpse of the champions. It's hard to imagine, but the, you know, just, just try to imagine if you can. <laughs> Now, I want you to imagine that, you know, the fall comes around, like it's September, and, and school's back in, and uh, there's, a, there's a basketball team. Okay, I'll just say it, it's basketball. Uh, a basketball team uh, at a, you know, a local high school in Toronto, um, they become deeply passionate about this sport, and they develop their own championship team, and they develop a winning team, and by, the, by halfway through the season, they are undefeated, and people are just in pandemonium over this incredible team. The school has taken a backsliding with their academics, they've stopped worrying about all the other extracurricular activities, and finally the principal who has been supportive of this, he's been tolerant of it, he's been permissive of all of this, he's finally had enough because he's like, you know what, basketball is good, but there are better things. He finally says this over the PA system one morning during the announcements. Do they still have PA systems in schools? Okay, good. I just, it's been a while. So, um, this is what he says. I am glad that we have a good team, and it is wonderful that we are undefeated. Your support for our great team is commendable. Please do not misunderstand me. I am not against basketball. In fact, I hope that all of you learn to play basketball. But right now, we must remember the importance of our academic program and get back to studying. This is, this is a very simple analog um, for what is happening in the passage that I'm about to read from. Paul speaks about the overuse of certain gifts. And this is what we're going to get into this morning. Just another really quick note before I read the passage. Um, that if you read through the, the whole of 1 Corinthians 14, which is where we're going to be hanging our hat this morning, um, the, we, uh, we have a very real tension that this is a long passage, uh, and we're going to read only about 26 verses of it, and there's 40 verses in total, and we don't get to everything. Because if you actually read a little further along, there's a section where it talks about some fairly contentious and controversial things in Christian circles, things like women not being able to speak in church. And I just want to say outright that we're not skirting around that or ignoring that, but it's not central to the point of where we're going this morning. If you ever go on my Twitter feed, all I do is talk about the importance of women in, in leadership and stuff like that. So if you kind of are interested in that discussion, just go there and I have links to all sorts of fun stuff. Um, but it's just not critical to where we're landing this morning. And so I just don't want, I don't want anyone thinking that we're, oh, they're just ignoring that really difficult passage. No, we want to be a church that engages with difficult passages. And there's already enough difficulties here with what we're talking about. So so, without further ado, let's read from 1 Corinthians 14. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire 
the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, or in the same way I would like every one of you to play basketball. (laughs) But I would rather you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters... If I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some kind of revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpets does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, and yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirits, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in a tongue and an inquirer or unbeliever comes in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if, yeah, Paul has a sense of humor, I think. Um, but if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and they are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their heart are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What shall we say then, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, and an interpretation. But everything must be done so that the church may be built up. This is the word of the Lord. 
I love the way Paul draws in from really the previous two sections that we just read from, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 13. And a couple weeks ago when Allison was preaching, she used the example of what is called a chiasm. It's sort of a, a sandwich with the good stuff right in the middle. Um, and so Paul does this. He talks about spiritual gifts. He says, hey, let's have a conversation about the importance of spiritual gifts. Chapter 12. And then he says, now let's talk about love and how love uh, is the central point of all of this. And that if, you're, if you have all these great spiritual gifts but no love, it's useless. Chapter 13. And now he's coming all the way back around and he's saying, okay, now that we have been reminded about the importance of loving in our gifts, let's talk about the gifts again in a new light. And so that's kind of where we are contextually in the book of 1 Corinthians. So if I were to make one statement as the central point of this passage, because there's a lot going on here, it's, it's challenging, there's some really confusing things going on, I'm going to do my best to unpack it, but even as I was reading through commentaries, some of them are confused and they're way smarter than me, so, um, so we know we're in for a good morning, right? <laughs> this is the central point though. God gives the gifts of the Holy Spirit primarily for the building up of the church. This is true of all spiritual gifts mentioned. But here Paul has in mind two gifts in particular that were uh, important to the church in Corinth. Tongues and prophecy. Now, tongues, that means the, the use of either unknown earthly languages or unknown heavenly languages. Most scholars would say um, it's a both-and situation, not an either-or. Um, tongues are a gift that have baffled and perplexed many people over the years. Some have suggested that it's really only useful if it is in the context of someone who is speaking another earthly language. So, say for instance, I don't speak Mandarin, but pretend for a moment that I was in a situation where I desperately needed to communicate with a person who only spoke Mandarin and then miraculously God gave me the gift in that moment to speak to them even though I don't speak it. Um, that would be uh, a usage of the gift of tongues. Um, there are others who speak of tongues as a heavenly language, kind of the way that, that it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels. This would be more of an unknown heavenly spirit language of really no discernible earthly origin. For many, this comes in the form of a personal prayer and worship language. Paul indicates in this passage very, very clearly, he indicates this is a good thing. This is a beautiful thing, not a harmful thing. Paul says, I would love that all of you spoke in tongues. But whether an earthly tongue or a heavenly tongue, whether when spoken publicly, Paul says there must be interpretation if the church is to be built up. It seems as though the church in Corinth had become uh, very in love with this gift. Like that school that fell in love with basketball, they tended to overemphasize it in favor of things that maybe they should have been uh, paying attention to. And Paul, being the very pastoral figure that he was, he encouraged them and did not discouraged them to use all of their gifts appropriately, but he brought a countermeasure to them. He brought a countermeasure saying, I would prefer that you prophesy. This kind of sounds like a bit of a course correction. The Corinthians had an unhealthy obsession with a good thing that they had been using in unhealthy ways. So Paul veers them on the course, on the proper course. He says prophecy. Now prophecy 
it will almost always certainly build up the church. Whereas tongues, it, it runs the risk of being confusing for people, understandably so. Prophecy, even still, can be confusing for some people. Because we often have in mind someone with a crystal ball, and they're a fortune teller, or like Long Island Medium, and all of those crazy people. There's like that John Edward guy. Not Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is a revival preacher from the 1700s. Not him. John Edward, the, the uh, medium. They're all garbage. They're all nonsense. Um, and uh, that is not what prophecy is. <laughs> Biblical prophecy is frequently more about forth telling, telling the way things are, than about foretelling or predicting the future. When you read through the prophetic scriptures, the prophets are frequently speaking into an already existing situation. They're speaking words of comfort, words of judgment, words of rebuke. And yes, some prophecy takes on the form of kind of a revelation about the future, but its most common function is to speak into the world for God's people today. You know, when, when in the Old Testament, the prophecies that were predicting the, the birth and the life of Jesus, they weren't just kind of a pie-in-the-sky idea of like, you know, one day there's going to be someone to, to, to save you. It also included an element that God is going to be their Savior in that moment. In the passage we read today, Paul makes it clear the significant benefit of prophecy. He says, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening encouragement and comfort. Someone in a gathering, they get up and they say something. They share it with a person. Maybe you go up to someone after the service and you go and say, hey, I've, I've sensed God saying this, that he wants you to, that you, he wants you to hear this. And it encourages and it builds them up. This was, this was of significant value for the church then, and I believe for the church today as well. So Paul offers a warning against the overuse or abuse of tongues because it runs the risk of becoming confusing to a, non, to a new believer or a non-believer. His encouragement was not then to get rid of it. That would be really easy. He actually wants them to wade into the messiness. But his desire was to just really swing the pendulum in a different direction so that the church could remain healthy. Again, our central point is that the church, it needs to be built up through the gifts. It's also worth remembering that churches at this point, likely uh, the church in Corinth, it was most likely a group of networked uh, home churches. So they're gathering in groups of maybe 20 people, maybe 30 at the most, if they had a large enough house. And they would gather together and there was a little bit more fluidity that can happen there, right? We'll get to some of that kind of practical stuff in a little bit. Paul then says something that's a little bit curious and convoluted. So if you're already a little bit confused about all this, let's, let's just get even more confused before we try to unveil it all. He says these words. For, the reason, for this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they, may inter- that, that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you were saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. What does he mean by this? 
It's a bit of a perplexing statement. What is the difference between his mind and his spirit? And as best as I can tell from my own kind of plain reading, as well as digging into some commentaries, he seems to be suggesting that it's critical that we, in our gathered worship, we bring together all of ourselves, our conscious, our subconscious. We need to bring together our mind and our spirit. In Paul's understanding, the, 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 our spirit is all-encompassing. Paul didn't believe in a dualistic way of viewing our body and our soul. It was all one. In that same way our bodies, in the same way that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, our bodies are not simply just containers for our souls. It's kind of like that image that you think of in like the Bugs Bunny cartoons where someone would, you know, get hit with an anvil and then their soul would float up to heaven. Like that's that's not a thing. (laughs) That's not a thing. Paul is saying it is all encompassing. It's all together. It's an integrated self that takes into account our intellect, our emotions, our desires, our physical bodies as well. And when we gather, Paul says that there will be inquirers present. Paul seems to work under the assumption that there will be people here in this room when we gather that are inquirers or even non-believers. And if that's you this morning, I want to just extend a special welcome to you. We're thankful that you are here and gathering among us. In what what Paul's referring to, it might have been non-believers or new believers or uneducated believers. It could have been non-Christian Jews or people that had never heard of the Holy Spirit before. Whatever the case, Paul's point is abundantly clear. He says, do not add barriers to people's understanding. Do not add barriers to people's understanding. Paul, in essence, is saying, you're not giving these poor people a chance to say amen. When you speak in a tongue with no interpreter, they have no idea what is being said, and thus they cannot participate. So combine not just your intellect, not just your emotions, not just your inward thoughts, but your whole self, body, soul, mind. Strive for intelligibility in both your verbal and your nonverbal cues. What sort of, what sort of uh, language is your body speaking in worship? Is it building up the church? Is it intelligible? That, just is, that, that, that doesn't include just our mouths, but it includes our whole selves. And for me, this is actually pretty personal, you know, as, as someone who is overseeing both our worship and our outreach. This passage is kind of the synthesis of them both in a, in a, in a kind of a very real way. Paul is saying, let's make our gathered worship make sense to those who are skeptical and questioning and seeking. This is a significant issue for so many churches to grapple with and deal with, not just here at Courtright. And the early church, they had already dealt with this sort of thing. If you read through the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, um, there was a bunch of them, Paul included, that gathered at something called the Council at Jerusalem. And there was a very sharp discussion and debate about whether or not new converts to Christianity, whether or not they were going to have to follow all of the Jewish law. People, there were some, there were some that were saying, hey, um, if these people are going to follow Jesus, that's great, but they need to follow all 613 laws in the Old Testament as well. They need to get circumcised. They need to do this. And finally, Peter, one of the twelve, pipes up and he says these words. He says, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. That we should remove barriers that are making it difficult to enter into the kingdom. 
And this is similar to what Paul's saying here in Corinth. People's spiritual gifts, which are supposed to be for the building of the church, are becoming barriers to those experiencing Jesus' community. And again, Paul is not in any way dismissing the gift of tongues. He's calling the church to maturity. He's saying, think of others more than yourself. Think, uh, instead like a, like, like, instead of thinking like a child, think like an adult. You know, I have a beautiful three-year-old daughter. You often will see her running around. Uh, she has bright red hair and she's precocious and sweet. But at that age, they do not have a great filter for their needs and their wants and their desires. So, you know, I'll be getting up at 6 a.m. and I'll be reading my Bible or something super spiritual like that. And she'll come out and she will say, Daddy, I'm too hungry. I'm too, and like, you know, it's like if I don't feed her in that moment, it's like pandemonium. And, and, and so I've been teaching her about patience slowly but surely, but it is a process. It is a process of maturity. But in the same way, our church, when we, when we, when we put our, um, our preferences and our needs before anyone else's, Paul says, you're acting like little spiritual babies, and that's not healthy or good. Paul is applauding their passion. He's saying, I, I so appreciate and love that you are passionate. But he wants them to have equal passion and equal zeal for the building up of the church. Okay, one last perplexing statement made by Paul. (laughs) He goes on to say, Tongues, then, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So after all of this about tongues confounding believers, or unbelievers, sorry, Paul then sort of confusingly says that tongues are a sign for unbelievers, even though everything previous and everything after seems to suggest the exact opposite. There's lots of debate over this one, <laughs> lots of discussion over this one. Um, I consulted uh, just a, a whack load of commentaries and nothing was conclusive. And so um, I, I'm going to say this up front that um, this is the fallibility of the preacher preaching an ancient text. And so I'm going to say that I could be wrong on this. But um, John Chrysostom, another church father, he said this, Tongues are a sign for unbelievers, not for their instruction, as prophecy is both for believers and unbelievers. But no, tongues are to astonish them. And if you think about that word, astonish. Astonishing someone can be a very good experience, where someone is astonished by something and they're drawn in, and they want to find out more, they want to know more. Tongues can also have the opposite effect on someone, where they hear it, they're, they're, they're confounded by it, maybe they're even turned away because of it. And that, it's, in, it's in that sense that I, that I believe that Paul is saying that it becomes a sign for them. It, it helps them go one way or the other. Whatever spiritual gift we're talking about, Whatever our thoughts on any of these things, maybe you're like, I've never seen tongues, I've never seen prophecy, I have no idea what this looks like. We're going to make sense of it in just a second. But Paul encourages, Paul commands us to use our gifts, not for our good or our glory, but for the building up of the body of Christ. And if we're building up the body of Christ, I want us to ask, what kind of body are we building? What kind of temple are we building? Are we building the Sistine Chapel where it's beautiful and intricate and lovely and and challenging and wonderful? Or are we building a house of cards that can be blown over at the slightest breeze? Are we building something beautiful or are we building something fractious and frail? 
at the end of chapter 14, Paul circles back to this central idea. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Building up the church through our gifts, intelligibility. This is the, the crux of this passage. What are the responsibilities of our pastoral team when we get together and pray through what this passage looks like for our community is we, we have to think about what this looks like for particularly this expression of the kingdom of God. And so with the short time that I have remaining, what I want to do is I want to ask a provocative question. Is that okay? Too bad. Uh, <laughs> what does building up the church and intelligibility, what does that look like for Courtright Presbyterian Church? What does that mean for us in the 21st century? You know, there's not a lot of people running around speaking in tongues and prophesying up front here. So it's easy to dismiss and say, well, this doesn't really seem to be pertinent for us. This really doesn't seem relevant for us. And I would argue that there is some deeply relevant things for us today. Because we all desire to bring honor to Jesus and to build up his church. But sometimes we have very different ways of going about it. Everyone's version of, as Paul said, fitting and orderly is very different. An African charismatic church, um, their version of fitting and orderly is going to be very different than a Western Presbyterian church. <laughs> and Presbyterian churches, um, and Alex reminded me, by the way, this week, Alex reminded me that I, I am now a Presbyterian. I said, well, you Presbyterian. He said, no, 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 you are a Presbyterian too, Justin. <laughs> but as I understand, as I get to know everyone, I'm learning that there is a rich heritage of fitting and orderly to the point that they have become the butt end of some jokes. Uh, there's a great Christian satire website called The Babylon Bee. Anyone know the Babylon Bee? So there's a great, this is really funny. I, I posted this on Facebook last night. Motion activated lights turn off during Presbyterian worship service. <laughs> there's, a, there's a quote from within the article that says, I checked my church bulletin, but having the lights go out wasn't in the detailed program of planned events for the morning. <laughs> oh, <it's> so good. <laughs> we can have fun with ourselves, can't we? Every church on earth has some practical tensions that we need to wrestle with that will help us answer this question of intelligibility and building up of the church. It helps us discern whether we're swinging too far one way or too far the other. And I actually think when we address this issue of tension, that it's not, you know, either or, it's often, okay, how are we swinging the pendulum? Which way, is it going too far this way or is it going too far this way? Where do we need to get to? There's a lot of ways that we, I, in which I, I wanted to approach this, but time only allowed for me to deal with three very briefly, and it's these three tensions. The tension of head versus heart, planned versus spontaneous, and historically rooted versus culturally relevant. Those are sort of the three, if you could imagine a pendulum over here, and a, uh, uh, one end over here, one end over here, and a pendulum swinging, which way do we need to swing to? And I'm not going to answer that this morning. This is something for us to ponder and pray through. And some of you personally might need to just examine and think through what this looks like for you. But I want to start to deal particularly with head versus heart. Head versus heart. I want to say that our intellect is given to us by God. 
This is a good and wonderful gift. There are many of you in this room that are driven by your intellect. And I don't mean that in a bad way. That you are really smart people. Um, and that you think things through very, uh, very thoughtfully. Paul, I believe, is a great example of this. If you read through the book of Romans, I feel like Romans is like this beautiful act of worship. It is deep in its theology. And it's, it's, it's an incredible thing to read where someone is just in their element worshiping God through the way in which they know how best. And for Paul, he was a deep thinker, a deep philosopher, a deep theologian. The depth is unparalleled. He brought his mind into all that he did. He brought it into his worship gatherings, and we too should bring our minds and our intellect into our worship gatherings. We are never called to check our brain at the door. And yet, our hearts and our emotions are also given to us by God. King David worshipped with all of his might before the Lord. Now, he did that in his underwear privately, um, uh, so I'm not suggesting we do that. Uh, But I'm saying as a general attitude of his heart, David brought everything, his heart, his mind, before the Lord. David and other psalmists, they cry out to God in lament and also with joy. God isn't scared of your emotions. God intricately wired our bodies this way. Engaging both of our head, both our head and our heart involves even our physicality. Paul, when Paul speaks about worshiping with his heart and his mind in that little kind of confusing passages, and he wants his worship to be intelligible to those watching. And how is something intelligible? If something is intelligible with, with not just our words, but with our actions as well. My former colleague, he had a saying. Um, he described something called face of thunder. This is probably a very unfamiliar phrase to most of you. Face of thunder. What, this is face of thunder. So if you could imagine someone, someone in a worship service and they're standing during the music, arms crossed, unimpressed look, grumpy face, and they're just like, impress me. Impress me. That, that's sort of the, uh, the, the idea of what face of thunder is. I don't know where he got that name from, but I, it stuck with me over the years. And what I would say... How can someone say amen when that is the, the posture, someone's physical posture? Now, I want to say and be very clear that someone in that moment with their arms crossed and looking grumpy, God might be like doing renewal inside them. They might be having this incredible encounter with the Lord in that moment, but like, how could I know? And that's kind of Paul's point. He's saying, how could anyone say amen to that? So it, I understand that all of us have different temperaments and some of us are stoic and some of us are a little bit more reserved. That's okay. That is okay. But what what I want to encourage us and challenge us in this morning is that what if the way you conduct yourself will actually raise the faith of people around you? Um, What if there's something that could happen when we use our physical bodies, when we decide that, you know, uh, we are going to express ourselves with a degree of joy because, after all, we are celebrating every single week the risen King being among us and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That should breed some degree of excitement and joy, should it not? Amen. Amen. And so what if you step out of your comfort zone? 
I want to challenge you. I want to challenge some of you to step out and, and, and recognize that we are not just individuals in a sea of people, but that we are the body of Christ and collectively we have a responsibility to the people around us. It's a profound thing to think about. And that way, when someone who is in the position of an inquirer or a skeptic or an outsider, they could walk in the room and be like, wow, God is really among you. God is really among you. You know, what is more attractive to an outsider, a new attender or an unbeliever? If they walk in the room and see a bunch of people, um, arms crossed, grumpy face, what's going to be more attractive, that or people expressing themselves with a degree of zeal and passion for the Lord, their hearts engaged, their minds engaged. I think we know the answer. Head and heart, both matter. Both are modeled in Scripture. And so my question is, are we devaluing one or the other? The second one, this is a lot shorter, is planned versus spontaneous. You know, God works in our planning. God himself is a meticulous planner. He thoughtfully planned out our entire existence. It's a beautiful and profound thing that the universe is in motion because God willed to do so and planned to do so. Having planned, uh, having a planned schedule in our church gathering helps us to be prayerfully considerate helps us to be thoughtful, it helps us to be consistent, and it helps us to be thematic. But it also, on the other side, it runs the risk of becoming a little stale sometimes. Becoming a little predictable. Becoming, for maybe some of you, a little bit boring. God works in our planning, but also God works in the moment. All you have to do is read through the book of Acts, and you'll discover that God loves interrupting our man-made plans. This cultivates an utter dependence on God's spirit and a preparedness that when something unexpected happens that we're ready to go instead of just like freezing, they're like, oh my gosh, that wasn't supposed to happen. However, spontaneity can also run the risk of becoming thoughtless and meandering. Spontaneity can also be challenging in a large group of this size where there's, you know, almost 200 people among us. And if you could imagine spontaneity, in a, if all of you decided you were going to get up and say something and do something, that would be chaos. And that is the very thing that Paul is trying to avoid here. Some of the gifts Paul is talking about here will actually make more sense in a smaller gathering. Planned and spontaneous, both are scriptural, both matter. The question this morning is, are we devaluing one or the other? And lastly, historically rooted versus culturally relevant. This is going to be a touchy one for some of you. I'm just warning you. Okay, this is going to be a touchy one because it's going to brush up some of, against some of our sacred cows. The Western church has a long, rich history of liturgy and tradition and hymns that we love and that I have grown to love as well. The church is also, on the other hand, it is ever-evolving and it's reacting to culture, it's redeeming culture and engaging culture. That is a, uh, that is a, a piece of the Reformed tr- tradition uh, in the uh, vein of uh, Abraham Kuyper. Correct, Alex? There we go. <laughs> There we go. I'm, I'm working on my, you know, I'm working on my, my reformed beard as well. That's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but just as one way to think on this idea of, of historically rooted and culture, culturally relevant, I want to actually use two lines from two different songs that we sung this morning, actually. The first line is this. 
Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that, let that goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. As a guy that grew up in a church that probably didn't do hymns until like 15 years ago because we were like constantly searching for new and better and more and faster and all that kind of stuff, um, that was my context. I didn't know any hymns until like 10 years ago. And I, I love them. I've grown to just love them because I'm like, this is new. This is awesome. <laughs> and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. But if you grew up with them and prefer them to modern music, you might be taking for granted that we are growing into an increasingly post-Christian world that has zero understanding of what a fetter is. So just as an example, when I was a youth pastor, I, um, I took a group of kids to a, a worship event where that song was sung. And I had one girl who was a recent convert. She had just come to know the Lord. She... Um, she ended up, uh, you know, coming to, to church with a friend and her parents were not Christians. And she read the lyric to the song and she's like, Justin, what is a fetter? And I'm like, Julie, I don't know. Let me Google it. <laughs> and so I did. And then I found out that a fetter is like a chain or a shackle. There we go. If you didn't know and you were too embarrassed to ask, I just helped you. <laughs> now contrast that with another song that we sung this morning. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, Lord, is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence, Lord. This might be, for some of you, equally foreign as fetters to some of you. What does it mean for the Holy Spirit to flood a place and fill the atmosphere? So for some of you, like that, that just seems inane or banal. This speaks, in my estimation, to a younger generation's yearning for something experiential. They're looking for something to hold on to. It speaks to a believer's desire to have an encounter with the living God. And this is a good and noble and right thing. It runs the risk. It runs the same risk, I would argue, as singing about fetters. (laughs) It's possible that different groups of you would call that lyric or the other lyric inaccessible or or, or, um, inappropriate for unbelievers. It's possible that people from other generations could call either of those songs unintelligible. This is a tension that we have to grapple with. We have to grapple it without being judgmental and dismissive. We have to listen to one another. So what's the solution? Like Justin, I'm hearing a lot of problems. I'm not hearing a lot of solutions. <laughs> well, in this case, it's simple. According to our passage, we need an interpreter. We need an interpreter. Even though we're not talking specifically about tongues here, we need an interpreter to explain what is happening in our midst, especially in an increasingly post-Christian world. If we are going to be engaging a new generation of, of prospective believers, we need to interpret what is happening. Someone needs to bring life to a confusing line in a song. Someone needs to explain why we sing, why we pray, why we have announcements at the beginning, why we read scripture, all of these things. When we explain why it bridges the gap for everyone. It puts us all on the same playing field because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Amen? It helps us all to be built up so that we can all understand what's happening. 
I think one of the things that I am aiming to do is bridge the gap between our generations a little bit better. And I've been having some conversations with some of you about this. So I want to encourage young people or young people at heart, if that's you, I want to encourage you, do not value your preferences over those who have come before you. And this goes a whole lot deeper than just saying, you know, I need you to honor and respect your elders. It is about honoring a spiritual legacy of faithful people. Now, for those in a later generation, I want to say to you as well, do not value your preferences over the generations that, have, that will come after you. They are not the church of tomorrow. They are the church of today. And if we do not engage the next generation at their level, we will continue to see churches declining and closing. This, I, I don't have any way to prove this or back this up, but I have a sense in my spirit that demanding our preferences holds more responsibility for the closing of churches than secularism. What might we need to do for the sake of cross-generational intelligibility in worship and the building up of the church? What might we need to do? And the answer is actually really simple. Um, if I ask my daughter what she learned in Sunday school today, um, even when I have no idea what the lesson is, but she will say, Jesus. And that's the answer that I have for all of us this morning. The answer is Jesus. To follow the person and the example of Jesus with all that we have. And my question is, did Jesus demand his preferences? No. A church that is filled with the Holy Spirit and a church that desires to build up the body of Christ is a church that will have the same attitude as Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 says these words. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each, each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This morning as we consider the work of Jesus on the cross, Jesus laid aside his preferences and his superiority. Jesus humbled himself. He gave of himself. He poured out his life for the building up of his church. And so my encouragement this, is, this morning is how can we have the attitude of Christ Jesus? How can we bring about intelligibility and bringing up of the church? Building up of the church. So the question for us to prayerfully consider is are we willing to do the same? Let's pray. Father God, we are deeply thankful for this challenging word, for this difficult word, because it causes us to, to think and to grapple and to just work through what all of this looks like. God, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us discernment by your spirits? God, would we hear from you? Thank you that your spirit is among us and is speaking 
and is moving. I pray that we would not leave this space without being reminded of the importance of hearing from you and loving the people around us and the building up of this particular expression of the church for the furthering of your glory and your goodness and your kingdom. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.